0: Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise. All of us have recently celebrated Thanksgiving and probably bought into the myth of the Puritans having their meal with the Indians, and we're so steeped in this myth that I was shaken to read uh, an, an account of earlier settlers. Those are the Dutch on Manhattan. And we have with us today the person who is really at the center of the new understanding of our American history. This is Charles Garing. Welcome.
1: Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So... I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little about what the New Netherlands Project
1: is. Well, it's actually called the New Netherlands Research Center now. Uh, okay. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, uh, we have an actual room in the library on the seventh floor with all of the research material. That you would need for uh, studying New Netherland,
0: and this is the seventh floor of the New York State the, Museum.
1: Yeah, of the New York State uh, Cultural Education Center. Oh, thank you Actually, for correcting my
0: r- names. That's good right. to get them right. Okay, <laughs>
1: right, because it uh, not only is it, is it the museum, but we all, the, it's the state library and the state uh, archives as well. So it's uh, everything is in one large building, but we're on the seventh floor. If you come to the uh, library on the seventh floor, you go to the research center. To go to the research center, go to the reference desk and look to your left, and you'll see the room. And, uh, and I
0: understand this is kind of a secret floor. If you get in the elevator, there's no button to push. No,
1: that's the eighth floor. Oh, that's
0: the eighth floor. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I, okay. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, <laughs> I used to be on the eighth <laughs> I floor. I see, all and right. And when Russell Shorto uh, uh, visited me, uh, at my office the first time. Uh, he couldn't get to me uh, because the elevator didn't have a eight.
0: So just it. to yeah. let people know, um, what Charlie's referring to is this book by Russell Shorto, The Island at the Center of the World, where he took Charlie's work and made it into a narrative that's riveting and graspable. And he has, and that's why I was passing on misinformation, he has near the start of this book a description of what he calls a soulless building and in it is this room where Charlie works with all this culture of of Dutch heritage in it. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Right, just- Russell
1: uh, uh, Russell had moved to the city uh, in the early uh around 2000 or so, I think. I'm not quite sure, but he was very close to where uh, Peter Stuyvesant uh, is buried. He's in a tomb there at uh, St. Mark's. Uh, And uh, he asked people who this person was because he's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, originally, Russell. Mm -hmm. And he had heard something about the Dutch and so forth, but nobody could give him an answer of what the importance of this place was, and uh, uh, Petra Stuyvesant, he talked to one person who said, you ought to go to Albany and see uh, Charlie Garing. And it just happened that we were having a seminar uh, or a conference uh, in a couple of weeks, and he came up uh, as a reporter for the New York Times and did an article about the conference, and he was so enthused about the size of the crowd. We had over 100 people attend the conference that he wanted to know more and uh, pitched a uh, project which turned into this uh, book, Island at the Center of the World. And uh, he uh, visited me every week. Uh, For about almost two years, he would drive up uh, from Putnam County, where he was living at the time, and did research for the book. So we got to know one another quite well, and he got to know the Dutch uh, very well.
0: Well, it's just an astounding narrative, but I got you kind of off the track. You were telling us about the New Netherlands Research Center and what your work is there.
1: Right. Uh, well, what, what we do is uh, translate the records that were left by the Dutch when the English uh, took over in 1664. They left everything in place in the fort uh, at the tip of uh, Manhattan, and uh, the English kept the records uh, uh, in a very good condition because of the land records that were involved. And the English, English were very concerned about maintaining the provenance of these uh, uh, land papers. So the, the records were all there. And eventually they were transferred up to Albany after, uh, after the uh, revolution. And it's these records that I started working on in 1974. There had there'd been attempts at translations uh, uh, before this, uh, but... Uh, yeah, I'm
0: just going to interrupt because you, you know better than I do, of course. I'm just working off of right. Russell Shorto's book. But the journey that these records took was just amazing. They um, started out... You know, when the English had taken over and were sent by stagecoach to Boston and then back to New York by stagecoach. And then during the Revolutionary War, they sat in a ship where they got moldy. Mm-hmm. And then they, um, you know, after the the colonists won the war against the British, they wanted the records back, so they came right. back. They were in the Tower of London <laughs> before that. And then there were several attempts to try to do what you've spent your life's work doing. Um in 1801 a committee of the assembly in New York wanted a translation and it was the directive was authored by Aaron Burr, but that never came to pass. And then in eighteen eighteen an old Dutch minister whose name I will probably mispronounce, Adrian van der Kemp, is that right? Yeah, van der he, Kemp, yeah. Yeah, he spent four years translating it, but apparently it was a really, really flawed, really bad translation. And then it ended up in the fire where somehow, ironically, it was protected because it was on... The translation was lost, but the records were on a lower shelf and the English records were on an right. upper this shelf. Right, this is the
1: 1911 library fire, which was in the west end of the the Capitol building at the time. And the uh, Dutch records, since they weren't used as much as the English records, they were down closer to the floor uh, in about six wooden shelves. And the English records burned... On t- burned through the shelves on top of the Dutch records and dropped down and protected the Dutch records from being destroyed.
0: (laughs) And that's just so ironic because here the English had kind of tamped exactly. down the Dutch history. I,
1: I told the story in the Netherlands at a conference, and uh, I got an applause that, uh, <laughs> that the English had finally,
0: <laughs> finally, <laughs> they had finally
1: gotten some mind. revenge for the oh English. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah.
0: And then there was a man who was a very capable translator, but he appeared to have had a nervous breakdown. Is well, that right? Well, he,
1: he was, uh, he was uh, translating uh, at the time of the fire— yeah. And he had uh, left uh, the very first volume of records on his desk the night before and uh, when the fire broke out it burned up his burned his desk and the first volume of records as well and just the damage that he saw the fire burned for almost uh, 3 days over 3 days and uh, all of this uh, work that it, uh, he had been involved in and in tra- uh, making a new translation of the records uh was lost uh, and uh, well not not totally lost but uh uh no longer did he have these uh records that were in perfect condition now they now they were uh, uh smoldering in many uh states
0: oh wow. uh, the
1: records down al- along the floor were kept uh, in pretty good condition the ones toward the top were um, severely uh, damaged along the edges, and uh, that's a problem that we still deal with today in translating. Is because many of them are uh, uh, flawed uh, because missing their edges, uh, with the edges, and they're also uh, heavily discolored because of the heat of the fire.
0: Yeah.
1: Instead of black ink on uh, white paper, there it's now sort of dark brown ink on uh, light brown paper. Oh, god! The contrast is is not as good as it used to be, and it's it's very tough on your eyes. Not only that, but uh, it's difficult to translate what isn't there anymore.
0: Well, I'd just like to hear more about your own background, that how do you know how to do this? Because as I understand it, the handwriting has changed, and the language, of course, has evolved in several hundred years. I mean, ha, ha, what is your training? How did how did you come to know this?
1: Well, I have a, a, a degree, a Ph.D. in Germanic, Germanic Linguistics. In my but sp- let's
0: go further back than that. Like, where did you grow up? What was your family oh, like? Oh, all
1: right. So, well, I grew up in a, in a little village. I, grew, uh, I was born in Fort Plain, New York, in my grandmother's house, oh, wow. in the back room of her house. And after World War uh, II, my father bought a house across the river uh, in Nelliston, New York. And uh, it's a small village. It was a small village at that time, about 600 people. And I think maybe over half of the people in the village had a van in front of their name. So <laughs> they were Dutch f- heritage. Van Vechten's, Van uh and uh, so forth.
0: What about your own family? Do you have Dutch heritage in your own family? Uh, no.
1: no? Uh, well, maybe going way back, uh, there's a Salzburg and a Salisbury on my uh, uh, on my great grandmother's side uh, from Rensselaer, but uh, the more immediate uh, ancestors are from uh, Germany and Italy. So I'm half German and half Italian. Uh, sort of uh, second, first, uh, first generation.
0: So, as a child, were you studious and scholarly? I mean, this is just such an exact. Well, this is
1: this is uh, something that uh, I've uh, uh, struggled with with uh, for many years. Our school uh, in Fort Plain only offered uh, Latin and French and languages, and uh, in the fifties. It was sort of the custom that the that it was the girls in the school who took language courses, <laughs> French and, and Latin.
0: I'm about your age, and yes, that was true. Uh, you yes. remember that. Yeah. I don't uh.
1: remember a, a single boy in uh, my class or in Fort Plain at that time who was involved in either one of those language courses. Yeah. They were all for uh, for the other gender. Uh but when I went to—I um, was supposed to go to West Point, and uh, I was uh, told by my congressman that I—he uh, had already given his appointment to a friend. <laughs> uh, this was a congressman in Utica. And he said if I went to a military school for a year, he would give me a, cent- or a principal appointment. So he gave me a choice of three schools, VMI and Virginia— uh, Citadel in South Carolina and uh, Pennsylvania Military College, which is now Wegner, I think it's changed. So I went to VMI. Uh, I was going to go to West Point because it was free, yes, because I, uh, you didn't have to pay right. anything, yeah. and my uh, my parents really didn't have uh, the income to support um, four years at a at a regular uh, university. Uh, but enough to get me into West Point to buy the uniforms, and, or into uh, VMI for a year. And I actually got the uh, uh, principal appointment for West Point, but I turned it down. I said, "There's no way I'm going to go through another year of this." Oh,
0: <laughs> the military training. Yeah. So I
1: uh, in in into my uh, third class year, which is the sophomore year, I. Uh, I transferred to uh, West Virginia University. I had become very interested in languages.
0: What interested you? What sparked that well, interest? Th- well,
1: uh, we had to take uh, uh, most of the courses at VMI at that time were uh, uh, engineering courses, physics and so forth, chemistry. And uh, two of the languages that they offered were German and French. Uh, for uh, science readers, and it was all about reading scientific journals and so forth. But I became fascinated by uh, by the uh, uh, languages, and especially German because of my German background. My Italian grandmother kept saying to me, "Why didn't you take Italian? You know, <laughs> see how easy it is to speak." And then she would say something to me in Italian. I said, "I know it's your native language, but, but I was never offered to take Italian. Uh, it's not as popular as German." And in in one of my language classes, there was a Afrikaner. His uh, father was in the South African embassy. In Washington, and he was at VMI and we talked about Dutch and about the Afrikaans he spoke Afrikaans so i had I started uh, gaining interest in in uh, in the Dutch language, and I started thinking, my god that 's where I come from. I come from a village that uh, has uh, descendants of uh, people who settled in uh, in the area in the sixteen hundreds And so that always stuck in my mind, and uh, so I decided to uh, go to a university where I could really concentrate on uh, language, and I went to West Virginia, ran out of money after uh, a semester. Uh, came back in '59. In it was uh, jobs were terrible, but I managed to get a job on the on the railroad. Last year of the New York Central Railroad, I became a signalman oh in a big signal tower in uh, in Utica, and I managed to save enough money to go back to school. Went back to West uh, West Virginia, got my BA, then I got an MA. And then I uh, got a Fulbright Fellowship to a university in Germany, to uh, the uh, Freiburg, uh, Albert Ludwig's Universität in, uh, in Freiburg.
0: And what did you study there?
1: Uh, Germanic <laughs> linguistics. That, that's what I wanted to do, was uh, uh, study uh, uh, German. My, my proposal was on something completely different it was on uh, the german mystics uh, of the middle ages Eckhart, tauler and zuzo the three famous german mystics and how they were affecting how they had affected the german language because they had to preach in german to the nuns who didn't weren't a lot i don't they didn't learn Latin, so they couldn't speak to them in Latin, so they had to speak to them in the vernacular and uh, they developed this height and kite that turned uh, action words into nouns and uh, this is what i was uh, pr- this is what I proposed as a as a dissertation topic well when i uh when I was at the university. Uh, there's a, uh, a room at the German University that concentrates on your subject matter, uh, a Seminar timmer, And uh, in this room are all of the books that uh, uh, you would need for uh, coursework uh, on your uh, concentration. And while looking through the books one day, I ran across a book called Crumbs from an Old Dutch Closet, <laughs> and it turned out to be an investigation of uh, New York Dutch uh and uh it uh, lights went off in my head and I said my god I said this is about the only thing that's ever been written on this subject and uh uh m- maybe this would be more worthwhile doing than uh, than what uh, I had proposed
0: isn't that serendipitous? You yeah, just it, it, came across this book, and yeah, lights went off. And, right. and
1: and the and the interesting or the extraordinary thing is that almost at the same time, I got a uh, a uh, a note. There was no email at that time, of course. I got I can't even remember. It must have been a letter uh, that I received from one of my friends in, in uh, West Virginia. Uh, He had heard that Indiana University was proposing uh, uh, courses in secondary languages, languages that weren't normally studied because they wanted to keep uh, these languages alive, and one of them was Dutch, Dutch and Danish at Indiana University. (laughs) So I applied for a three-year fellowship there, and I got it. So I got to study both Dutch and Danish for three years, and then I got to be more interested in uh, in Dutch. And that's how I ended up uh, uh, really concentrating on 17th century Dutch as a dissertation topic.
0: What was your dissertation about?
1: It's uh, the study of a language... Uh, Uh, A minority language uh, and the pressure of a majority language uh, over the years is a a social study of of, uh, a minority language. In other words, Dutch uh, was being impacted by uh, uh, English uh, after the English takeover and how uh, the language adapted to this uh, situation.
0: But isn't that fascinating, because that's the very core of this book by Russell Shorto, not on the language, but on the culture. That's right. How the English culture dominated. Exactly. And you studied it yeah. at the language level right. as a dissertation.
1: Gosh. And then, and then uh, um, the, uh, these uh, things in my past kept coming, surfacing. The guy I knew at BMI was an Afrikaner, and he spoke Afrikaans. And the Afrikaans language is a development of Dutch uh in a uh area where it was being uh uh being uh, oh competed against by english and uh, so it's a very it was a very similar situation and I was very interested in how uh, the uh, New York Dutch would match up with what had happened in Afrikaans. And simplification of the language, uh, the uh, adoption of uh, loan words, the uh, uh, changes in uh, uh, phonetics uh, in uh, in uh, Dutch to make it easier for the majority language, the the majority language to pronounce uh, certain words. Like like in Dutch, you have a. a an au as in a uh, uh, stavison stavison it's not st- stavison the way but we it's say it star- stavison Stavison Plaza, for example.
0: <laughs> and I noticed you said his first name differently too. It's yeah, Petrus. Petrus.
1: He went to the university. When you go to a university in the middle in in that period of time you Latinize your name.
0: Oh, that's right. And I remember in right. Shorto's book he said he didn't finish. Right. Day didn't finish, but right. he still kept that Latinate form, yeah. although yeah. he hadn't finished yeah, his that's degree. Right. Yeah. Well so now tell us how with your serendipitous journey, you ended up with the New Netherlands Research Center. What You were in Indiana. Yeah. You had finished this three-year fellowship.
1: Right. I'm still working on my dissertation. Uh, I was looking for a job, and uh, I got one at the uh, University at Albany. Uh, the idea was to start a Netherlandic Studies program. And... Uh, It didn't work out because uh, of various reasons, which I won't go into. The guy who was really promoting it got into some trouble, and he was uh, pushed out. And uh, I was teaching German courses, and they didn't want to uh, spend the money to hire another person to... uh, 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 do what I was doing at the time, so I was sort of stuck teaching uh, elementary, first, second, uh, conversational uh, German. Not
0: what you came to any for. But
1: they did allow me to teach linguistics as well. I taught a course in general linguistics and developed a course in the growth and structure of the German language which I taught. So I was able to do something of what I was uh, actually trained for, but I was basically uh, uh doing uh, uh, uh very elementary stuff uh teaching German we taught a lot of students and uh, uh after six years uh it was uh, your you either were propose, you were proposed for tenure or you left and uh, at that time I think the german department was uh almost 90% tenured at that time so it was 6 years and out
0: oh gosh so
1: after 6 years i was looking for a job again and uh it just happened that i had been at the new york state library this is when it was still in the in the education building the big education with building the and what, all with all, all the, the columns front, yeah, yeah and uh uh i knew he uh, uh his wife was from uh, stone arabia which is uh, in uh, just north of Canada uh, harry new york okay. north of palatine bridge stone arabia is steen rapia in dutch which means stony turnips
0: oh my goodness yeah <laughs>
1: Lansingburg <laughs> in Troy used to be called Stone Arabia originally.
0: I never knew that. Yeah, the
1: Dutch uh, uh, were amazed by the amount of s- these little stones that came up every spring because of like the turnips. glacier uh, yeah. movement of oh, the gra- glacier. Yeah. And so they uh, they developed this uh, 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 Stone Arabia, Rapia, which develops into Stone Rabi, Stone Rabi. You see it all over the place in road names out near Oneonta. There's a Stone Robbie Road, and uh, there's a St- Stone Arabia in uh, New Jersey. And uh, But uh, his wife came from Stone Arabia, and my sister lived in Stone Arabia. And so we got to know them. And uh, he was the uh, uh, head of manuscripts and special collections at the New York State Library. So when I was working on uh reading the original Dutch manuscripts for my dissertation I got to know him and uh he was connected to uh, to people in the Holland Society in New York this is very complicated No but it's fascinating <laughs> In the Holland Society who um this uh, this man was uh, uh very interested in starting the translation project up again. uh, Fenlar, uh the last translator who uh, was uh, uh, in involved the the in the in the fire yeah. and so forth, uh, he had died in the fifties, uh, and um, uh, they were looking for somebody to continue his work. He had four volumes of translations that were still uh, in manuscript form. And the idea was to get these published. Well, this, uh, 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 this guy in the Holland Society uh, knew a publisher in Baltimore. Uh, he was from Baltimore originally, and uh, he uh, uh, arranged for having these four volumes uh, published and uh, they wanted to uh, find money also to uh, to do the uh, to start the the project up again uh so i uh uh when i uh realized i wasn't going to get tenure uh, I was looking around for uh, for work, and, and the the uh, director or the head of the manuscripts department, Peter Christoph, his name is. He um, uh, approached me up in the. I was in the Mohawk Valley at the time, working at my in laws' farm, baling hay, <laughs> <laughs> putting hay in a Dutch barn. <laughs> oh my gosh uh and uh uh he said uh, i've got a, a a possibility for work if you're interested as a translator said we're looking for somebody to start the translation project up again and uh uh, I said, "Well, I'll I'll do anything at this point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and um, I never wanted to be a translator. This was something I wanted to teach uh, Germanic linguistics. That's what I was trained to do, and uh, I said, "Sure, I'll uh, I'll do it." So I I I got a job uh, in Albany, uh as a, uh, a translator of the Dutch record. Something. That, been doing for 45 years well, now that's my
0: question <laughs> right. it's not what you wanted to do but you got hooked in what what has kept you at it what why what has sustained you for I mean 45 years that's right
1: well uh when I first started uh, uh I was amazed by the uh, detail and the amount of information in these uh, records uh, it's some of them, twelve
0: thousand o- pages, right?
1: Over twelve thousand <laughs> pa- uh, pages. A uh, lot, lot of them had been uh, uh, translated and published, but not very well. And uh, only the uh, the political information, uh, the Great White Fathers uh, mm. uh, uh, syndrome. Uh, that was the important stuff that previous uh, translators uh, or editors thought was what was most important. The social uh, information was secondary and needn't be bothered with. And uh, I was amazed at how much there was in the records of uh, social nature. And uh, I, uh, I said that uh, I thought that this would be Uh, an eye-opener for people who uh, consider the uh, uh, pilgrims as our founding fathers. (laughs) I said it was the Dutch. I mean, it's the Dutch already doing these things. They were here. The Dutch were here before the pilgrims. They had already uh, been active in the Hudson Valley in 16 teens, and the pilgrims— don't show up until 1620 in, uh, along the coast of uh, of uh, uh, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and then move over to uh, uh, Plymouth in 21. 1621 is it was sort of late in the in the year, and the Dutch had already been here in and out trading with the Indians for almost uh, a decade. And um, I said, and nobody knows anything about them.
0: Well, yes, and yeah. still to this day. To I this mean, day, your work right. has opened it up a lot. But I was just amazed because. I consider myself an educated person, and I learned so much. I mean, the way, um, and if you can just talk about some of the kinds of things you've translated, because what Russell Shorto has picked up on is the Puritan societies being so narrow and casting out and punishing anyone that didn't follow that path, whereas the Dutch society in Manhattan was so open and took in these people that were cast out and had such a variety of religions and nationalities all kind of trading and living together in a, right. a, a very interesting kind of society right um so like what are some of the
1: well, well you, things you, you, that you
0: translated that added <laughs> to that well, um, uh, first of all, that, you, you? you have
1: to realize that the pilgrims lived in the Netherlands for 13 years.
0: That's right, that's right.
1: <laughs> and they ended up over here, the way they're, they're depicted, their dress is depicted, that's all Dutch. The mm-hmm. hats and the black mm-hmm. outfits with the big white collars and so forth, that's all pretty Dutch. And they brought a lot of Dutch uh, tools over with them and so forth. And But the reason they left was because they were basically intolerant, and they didn't want anybody to be uh, 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 sort of contaminated with uh, other religious ideas uh, at that time. And probably the, the major reason was their children were becoming Dutch. They were learning Dutch. The children were speaking Dutch better than their parents because they were uh, growing up bilingual Mm -hmm. at that point. And uh, they they wanted to get them to a place where they could control things better, so they ended up uh, uh, in uh, uh, Massachusetts. Um, The Dutch, uh, in fact, a lot of Thanksgiving and so forth was something that they had... uh, Already practiced in the Netherlands, it was another a Dutch holiday and uh, and so forth. A lot of the things that they do are, are uh, attributed to uh, the, their period in the, in the Netherlands. But that's all going to come out in a, in a, in a next year uh, and the year after. There'll be this big celebration of the arrival of the pilgrims, and we'll hear a lot about that.
0: Yeah, I guess. But yeah. if you could just talk about like the kinds of things in these pages other than what you called the Great White Father sorts of yeah. documents, like what what are some of the documents that that you've translated that. It shed light on this this, this culture this right. social uh, well the, the records
1: are mostly administrative records uh, councilmen's is correspondence uh, uh land records uh laws and ordinances and so forth but you also get a feeling for uh, for the people why they're in court why they're uh, defending themselves uh, for certain things and uh you uh, you gain a, a, a an understanding that um, a different uh, uh, culture is uh, developing here, and the reason for that is is that um, the the Dutch at that time in the in the Netherlands in Amsterdam were multi-ethnic. They were coming in from all over Europe into the Netherlands, down the river systems, down the Rhine, the Maas, and the and the Scheldt, and um, because the Dutch were it was a fairly open society at that time, and they were uh, uh, not an into- wasn't an intolerant society. And when we talk about tolerance, we're not talking that you know you could just do whatever you want. but you wouldn't be punished for being a uh, a Mennonite, for being a Baptist for being a, a Quaker or for uh, being a, a different, uh, a different uh, religion. And uh, the Dutch uh, called this freedom of conscience. They had already been uh, uh, severely uh, oppressed by the Spanish to become Catholic again. And uh, if you didn't recant... You could uh, be uh, severely punished, or even uh, uh, hanged. Uh, The pilgrims were doing this as well. In Boston, the the last person hanged, I think, was in 1655. Was a Quaker Quaker woman. Uh, The Dutch never hanged anybody. Uh, Article 13 of the Union Union of Utrecht, which is like their constitution at that time, is sort of a defense pact between the seven provinces that broke with Spain, uh, states that uh, no one will be persecuted or prosecuted for their uh, beliefs. So that's freedom of conscience. And uh, many people came to the Netherlands uh, because of that. A good example is Robert Livingston, uh his father was a religious dissident in Scotland at the time and moved to was sort of forced out and uh suggested that he go to the Netherlands and he took his uh, uh son robert with him who grew up bilingual and became a very important uh person in uh, in this area in fact in uh in uh the uh, uh albany uh uh area so one one of the major attributes of the Dutch is this freedom of conscience, this toleration. Um, they, uh, as you know, the Dutch, uh, the Netherlands is a very small area, and you have to be able to tolerate people next to you; otherwise, uh, you're you're never going to uh, survive so they knew how to live together and no matter what your belief was or uh, whatever what your ethnic, ethnicity was so people came over from all over europe from uh, a lot of germans uh a lot of uh french speaking uh walloons french speak later french speaking huguenots um english Uh, People from Central Europe, we have Croatians, Uh, we have uh, uh, Poles, Uh, people from Lithuania, Uh, Asher Levy was a butcher from uh, Lithuania, and he became one of the biggest landholders in in, uh, New Netherland.
0: Yeah, I was just amazed. The book focuses a lot on maybe I'm saying the name wrong, Adrian Vonderdonk, and he, it was a figure I never even heard of yeah. before. And just you know, he sort of stands in this book anyway, along with Stuyvesant. I'm saying the wrong way. Yeah. No, that's the way we figure. pronounce it. Yeah, and yeah. um, yeah. Vonderdonk, just this young lawyer from the Netherlands, first under, you know, working as kind of a, I don't know, sheriff for the patroon, but, you know, exploring the land and cataloging the natural life and this huge love of the new world. And then his later attempt to try to get a, a sort of a home rule system. And all that I never knew anything about, Right. and here is this really important figure yeah. in shaping who we became as a nation. Right. So, like yeah. as you as you translated these things, just describe what it must be like to be really. You're like Henry Hudson, you know. You're exploring by going through the past and finding these new things. I mean, what what does that feel
1: yeah, like? You're, you're, well, you're you're seeing. Uh, the the embryo of uh, certain ideals we uh, that we have as Americans, uh, mobile uh, uh, mobility uh, of, uh, eth- of uh, social mobility is a, is a major uh, feature in in America. If you're if you're smart, if you have ambition, you can rise to the top. You uh, all you have to uh, have is that uh, that drive. Um, of course, you can't become president anymore. Seems unless you're a billionaire. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it also helped uh, be uh, married to uh, somebody who had a good. Um, well, that
0: too is <laughs> fascinating, and he, uh, Shorto must have gotten that from marriage records that you translated. Just the. Intermarriage in different cultures. Well, this was it. it. Was yeah. fascinating, yeah. but also this idea. And I, I just was recently reading Alexis de Tocqueville, who you know came later to America and said that that was what differentiated it from Europe. This idea you could pull yourself up by the bootstraps Social mobility, it wasn't inherited wealth. Right. That
1: Very unlike uh, what developed in uh, in Boston, for example, where you still had that class structure. And no matter how smart you were uh, how much ambition you had, you were stigmatized by who who you were
0: uh, your what social line. class yeah. you were
1: uh, born into and it 's uh, pr- uh, pretty much that way in England i think in many respects're you 're sort of stigmatized in many ways by your language what the mm-hmm. dialect you speak, mm-hmm. and so forth but here uh, you start getting a, um, a a blending of different uh, cultures uh, and uh it it allows for uh um this uh, social mobility uh, the skylers for example they were uh uh, when they first came over they were uh they had come from I think they were boatmen on the Rhine River, uh uh Germans probably. And uh they uh they eventually developed into one of the uh upper classes of, of New York, uh in the Hudson Valley and uh, in uh, in Albany, uh uh, Philip Schuyler was a general in the in the revolution, and uh that he went from the, his family went from the bottom right to the top and uh this was uh this was a a, a feature that you find in in the uh the records that people are not uh, uh bound by their uh, uh by their birth or what um, uh, uh, position they were born uh, to.
0: So just in the logistics of translating, how how do you decide what order you're going in and how much have you accomplished and how much is left to do and can you do it in your lifetime? <laughs> how old are you?
1: Well, no, I, I just turned 80.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And you're still working full, yes, I am. full tilt. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right. So, how, how much of this over twelve thousand pages have you translated, and how many pages are left?
1: Well, that's all, that's always a problem trying to figure that well, out. Rough, roughly, <laughs> yeah. are you I, halfway through? I would say we're, we're probably uh, we're probably in the seventy-five to eighty percent range of uh, of of this one corpus of records. So, we're talking about what was in the fort. Remember, right, in sixteen sixty-four. These are the official administrative records of New Netherland. There are also other records, the patroonship of Rensselaerswyck, for example. Uh, there's even more information uh, there, and a lot more social information.
0: But are you thinking you can finish this in your lifetime? Or well, no,
1: I, I don't think I would ever so, see okay. the end of it. You're going
0: to live to a hundred? Yeah. Well, um, the problem
1: the problem is is that when I began. Uh, we were always looking for uh, financial support. Uh, the project was funded for one year this when was I started through
0: Nelson Rockefeller. Was it R- right?
1: <coughs> it was. Uh, it was actually uh, Ralph de Groff, who was the uh, uh, member of the Holland Society, who knew Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller had just become vice president. president. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said, could you um, uh, have Malcolm Wilson, who had become governor of New York, to replace Rockefeller, uh, to put some money into uh, a translation project? And uh, Rockefeller also had interest in, in, the, in the Dutch, and, uh, and it seemed like a good idea. So they funded it for one year. And after the the funds ran out, um, I was cut loose. (laughs) I had to find money from other sources. I had a desk. Uh, I was still in the old building uh, on Washington Avenue, and I had access to the records and so forth, but I had to find money from other sources, and we got money from a couple of uh, foundations, And then the bicentennial happened in 76. That was the, uh, there was a lot of money available for various projects and so forth, and I became one of the projects for about a year. That kept me going for another year. I have no benefits at this time. I'm I'm completely, (laughs) Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, there was nothing um, uh, th- th- It was very tough going for uh, for a number of years But as it worked out As things sometimes do <laughs> uh, NEH in Washington Was starting up a translation program As part of the National Endowment of the Humanities Went down and visited them And they said that uh, next year uh, we're going to put money into translation projects. Uh, If you can wait for a year and apply, if you can apply for it, in the meantime you can uh, apply to this other uh, program called the the NHPRC, National Historic Records uh, 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 Program to do a, a guide to the records, Dutch records, in uh, uh, the United States. So I got money for them for a year that led me into the NEH uh, project. So it was one of those things that was sort of uh, year by year, uh, and they, uh, they they dovetailed nicely because I got to find out where all of the other Dutch records uh, were in a, in a, uh, America and uh, was able to uh uh then get this grant uh from NEH it was a matching 50-50 grant we still had we had to raise money uh every year and uh I did that for 32 years
0: oh my gosh so really this wouldn't have happened without you it took one person to keep it going. I mean, now it's been declared a national treasure. Is it, is it safe now? Is your salary like a secure thing at this point?
1: I actually, uh, uh, a number of years ago, uh, I actually got a, a position in the uh, education department
0: well, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, hard one. I won't,
1: I won't go in any details about it, but it's uh, it is fairly uh, is, uh, stable. I I think you never know. Yeah, uh, uh, anybody can be caught. But to just in, but,
0: the dedication to your work is astounding to me.
1: Well, this is uh, this is w- w- when when you see what uh, the potential is in the. Uh, in the documents uh, and uh, th- that you're going to make this available for researchers uh, who can't read 17th century Dutch now you could, you could be someone who can read Dutch but to read the handwriting is a different matter it's a different uh, form of, uh, of writing and it's a secretarial hand that the Dutch developed for their clerks and secretaries to regularize the um, the maintenance of uh, of records uh, in the Netherlands, it's very uniform, uh, but it's uh, it's a major stumbling block for anybody uh, wanting to learn seventeenth century Dutch.
0: <laughs> and, but also, but, Russell Shorto writes that you can just dis- you yourself not. Anyone else can just tell by glancing at a, like this is Stuyvesant's handwriting, or this is yeah. like you you know yeah. Yeah. you know these people by their hands. Uh, Stuyvesant's
1: their- handwriting is the worst. <laughs> 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 he, uh, uh, he 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 uh, obviously didn't learn the uh, the secretarial hand, but was probably taught by his father, maybe who was a domini.
0: a minister, uh, a minister,
1: yeah. yes and it's very difficult a very difficult hand but once you get used to it uh, uh it's uh it's still a problem but uh, you get through it uh, but the majority of the of the material we deal with is uh, by uh, trained secretaries and after a while it's almost like the, a typewritten document um the, it's so regular
0: really yeah
1: the dutch were uh, one of the first to develop a, a a regular uh handwriting for the for keeping records yeah it's uh, uh it really uh helps a lot
0: <laughs> i bet <but laughs> because still. you're
1: dealing with so many other obstacles uh, with the, with the damage to the records and so forth and uh and then the language itself has changed over the years it's uh, the equivalent would be uh if you read shakespeare
0: Elizabethan uh, without the notes
1: at the bottom, right? right. Uh, yeah. If you read um, uh, Shakespeare, you then you look, glance at the notes, and you see. Well, I didn't really quite understand that. Uh, these words have changed over the years. It, there are different expressions, and um, they're, they're all uh, noted but uh, you have to discover all of this on your own when you're reading 17th century. So is there
0: any thought to who will be carrying on this work after you? Well,
1: a woman works for me. uh, She's uh, been with me for 30 years, uh, 35 years now, uh, Yanni uh, Fainema, and uh, she is now translating on her own, and uh, uh, she will uh, take over when... uh, uh, as uh, as director of the uh, uh New Netherland Research Center uh there are other people out there who do work in this area uh, as a, a sideline not as uh not as a full-time job and uh they can be called on they're we're, we're not alone in other words there are, there are other people but they don't do it full-time
0: well We've run over our time because this is so fascinating. Do you have any closing thoughts for people? Any anything we haven't touched? and I'm sure there's a lot, but just
1: look in your attics for documents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really, do people? I've been, I've people been find after them?
1: people for years to uh, to uh, especially in the in the Mohawk Valley as well. Uh, uh, I've had all kinds of uh, people approach me, oh, I've got these records, and they're in a the hand I can't really read and so forth, and I'll bring them in someday, and it never, it never happens, uh, very rarely. But do
0: people actually unearth things in their attics that are valuable? Oh, are they, sure. Yeah?
1: Yeah, they yeah. don't know what they are anymore, right. and uh, a lot of the stuff is just thrown out. Oh, my. Yeah, and uh, right now we're— we're. Uh, involved in a project uh it's a, a bible project the dutch if they had one book in their house they had the the bible the dutch had the bible translated uh into dutch uh in the uh by, uh, by uh, 1628 um it was done it was finished and uh, so you have these big dutch bibles they weigh 18 pounds with metal clasps (laughs) to hold the covers together and it's the only paper that they have in their house at the time so when somebody dies or somebody's born they'll write on the blank pages in the beginning or at the end uh, just before the covers Mm -hmm. uh, all of this information genealogical information and they also write uh unusual events i have an earthquake in the 1750s a snow uh, a flood in albany that no one has ever recorded uh that uh that uh, ran for 3 miles uh, north and south of uh, albany and destroyed a lot of houses this was in 1720 uh snowfalls right up to the eaves of the of the houses. Uh, uh, things like that, uh, unusual events. So we're we're going around to various places and um, uh, looking at these the Bibles. I just went through 128 Bibles at the Albany Institute and we have somebody photographing the pages that I designated now for uh, copying that have actual that have information in them the holland society has done the same thing and th- this will all eventually be put online so that we have this information that is one of a kind it doesn't exist anywhere else yeah. the bible we know uh, we know what the text of the right. bible is the Bible is both that stuff that's written in uh, on the blank paper uh, that's that's what's uh, uh, of interest so uh, if you have any bibles <laughs> a Dutch bible uh, let us know uh, I'm at the uh, uh, New York state uh, library and uh, if you put in uh, charles dott Garing at nysed that's New York State Education Department dot gov you'll uh, you'll reach me.
0: Well, thank you.
1: My pleasure.